listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Since 2009, the Pharmacy Podcast has been leading podcast publications as the insider voice of the pharmacy industry. Explore the profession and business of pharmacy through audio. Join us at PharmacyPodcast.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any of your favorite podcast directories. Hello and welcome to PTCE's Pharmacy Connect, a podcast focused on continuing education created by pharmacists for pharmacists. PTCE is the leader in pharmacy and managed care education. In these episodes, listeners will be presented with the most recent clinical updates and strategies for implementing into practice. This podcast is a summary discussion on the impact of attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder, also known as ADHD and new non-stimulant classes of ADHD treatment. Dr. Mullen will explain the role of the pharmacist in patient counseling, monitoring, and medication management for those with ADHD. Non-stimulant medications provide slightly different mechanisms of action for the treatment of attention deficit and hyperactivity disorders compared to the typical first-line agents, stimulant medications. Today's PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcast episode is an overview of the novel non-stimulant ADHD treatments with Dr. Sandra Mullen, clinical pharmacist specialist with experience in child and adolescent psychiatry. A special thank you to Supernus for their educational grant for this podcast content. Here's our host and founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Todd Yuri. Returning to continuing education through podcasting, PTCE Pharmacy Connect has been an absolutely amazing partner of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, expanding additional information through audio. So really helping our pharmacists collect their continuing education, but more importantly, just understanding what's happening out there in our world. And one of the subjects has been so interesting to me, even thinking back in my past, probably as a child, I we didn't really have the identification of ADHD as much as we do today with so much of the research that's coming out attention deficit disorder i mean we're talking there's so much stimuli out there video games and so much neurofeedback and and there's so much encouraging promising adhd uh, medication therapies and collaboration between psychiatry and pharmacy and primary care it's exciting to bring this subject today to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect, and we have someone that I'm excited to introduce to Pharmacy Podcast Network. Dr. Sandra Mullen is um, a clinical pharmacy specialist with background in child and adolescent psychiatry with Virginia Commonwealth University, the great VCU. Welcome, Sandra. How are you today? I'm good, Todd. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Um, yeah, I am a child and adolescent psychiatric pharmacist. I've been doing this for a couple of years now, since about 2008. Um, and I work strictly with the pediatric population, which uh, is kind of hard to find for a pharmacist position, but I really enjoy the, the work I do. I work with inpatients and outpatients. Um, and I do see quite a few kids that come through both our acute units and our outpatient areas with ADHD, um, actually run an ADHD clinic with one of our attendings. So it's exciting to be here to talk about some of our newer non-stimulant medications. We're glad you're here and I'm excited to dig into this. So we're gonna start off and stage for our listeners. If you're driving, if you're jogging, exercising, don't worry, we do have show notes for you to access more of this through PTCE Pharmacy Connect. But let's start out. So Sandra, let's open up and, and set the stage. Can you tell us a little bit about attention deficit 
hyperactivity disorder. And, you know, how often is this occurring today? And, and why do parents seek treatment for children with ADHD? So ADHD is increasing, I would say, in some areas, but remaining stable in other areas. Um, the CDC or the Centers for Disease Controls do a parent survey periodically, usually about every two to three years. And the most recent survey published was from 2016. And it indicated that about 9.4% of our pediatric population has been diagnosed with ADHD. Um, that equates to about 6 million kids, which when you think about it, that's a quite a few kids that are running around in our classrooms that are disrupting classrooms or having difficulty staying on task and paying attention. So parents often end up seeking treatment because they're told that grades are declining in the classroom. There's poor frustration tolerance by their children. Uh, they see trouble with them completing schoolwork or completing homework at times. They have recommendations from the teachers that they need an evaluation. That's a fairly common one because the teachers get frustrated. So they tell the parents, hey, I need your help. Um, they also see trouble with kids staying in their seat, talking out of turn, they may get easily distracted. And so what actually happens is about 77% of our kids end up on some type of treatment, whether it's medication alone, behavioral interventions alone, or combination treatment with both, which is actually probably the best thing that we can do for our kids is doing meds along with behavioral therapy or behavioral interventions. Um, so about 32% of our pediatric population that are diagnosed with ADHD end up on that combination treatment. Sandra, funny story. My mother used to have me come home. I was probably in fourth or fifth grade, and she'd tell me, when I got off the bus after asking me how my day was, if I'd run around the house 10 times and to time um, how fast it took me to go around the house. And of course I did that, not knowing that she was uh, concerned with how hyperactive it, you know, I just, <laughs> I was a hyper kid. So back then, 1978 through 1980, I mean, we just didn't have the data that we have today. So I definitely wanna ask you, what are the current criteria used to diagnose ADHD? So right now we use the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the fifth edition, which was updated in uh, 2013. And it really looks at um, ADHD across your hyperactive and impulsive subtypes along with your inattention subtype. And then what does it look like when you combine both of those group to get, groups together? So for each individual subtype, you have to have six symptoms for a minimum of six months. And you should see the diagnosis by the age of 12, but you can actually see symptoms start to develop at four, five, six years of age. Now, that doesn't mean at those early ages, kids need to be medicated, but it does mean that you might see some of that hyperactive, impulsive, daydreaming type stuff going on. Now, for older kids um, and adults, we say that we need five symptoms um, by, for the six months, so a little bit different. Um, if we have combined type, we're actually looking at 12 symptoms, so six from each grouping for a period of six months. So there's a little bit of difference between ages and also onset. So adults look a little different than kids. Obviously, you're not going to have a hyperactive adult running around in circles, but you might have them moving from task to task. So um, to go back to your, your story about you running around the house, one of the things that parents often come in to clinic and even on the units talking about is, well, my kid can sit and play video games constantly for hours. And, but they can't do their homework. And one of the things we try to normalize for the parents is 
what's going on on that video game. So that video game screen is constantly changing. And so their attention is constantly shifting as that screen changes. But to sit down and do homework or build a puzzle or read a book, they have to have sustained fixed attention. And that doesn't always happen. Whereas that video game, while you think it's sustained attention, it's not. Their brain's actually firing constantly. That is fascinating. And I wonder when parents are are wondering about that with their children in the diagnosis, it's, it's curious what happens next. So once a child is diagnosed with ADHD, what are the medications recommended for use based on the available treatment guidelines? So once we have a diagnosis, which we hope is through rating scales, not just through observation. So looking at things like our Vanderbilt rating scales or our Connors rating scales that we have parents and teachers fill out, we then look to our treatment guidelines. The most recent set of guidelines revised in 2019 was through the American Academy of Pediatrics. There are others like the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, and the Canadian ADH Resource Alliance Practice Guidelines. They're a little bit older, um, none of which are going to take into account our newest medication, Veloxazine. But when you look at all of these guidelines, they all basically say for kids that are six and older, you can start a medication and you should be starting with a stimulant agent, whether it's a, from the methylphenidate grouping or the amphetamine grouping. You want to start there because three quarters of our pediatric patients or three quarters of individuals with ADHD will actually respond to that stimulant medication that started the first time. Now, if you go through the stimulants, and it used to be try one try one stimulant like an amphetamine, and if they fail the amphetamine, you go to a methylphenidate. Now, because we have so many different formulations, we're sometimes going between classes back and forth. So it might be you try something like a mixed amphetamine salts, and then you go to a methylphenidate, but then you go back to Listex amphetamine uh, before you get to the non-stimulant agents. And the non-stimulants are technically classified as our second line agents. So things like atomoxetine, veloxazine, or, or the extended release clonidine and guamphacines. Um, reasons we might use these as first lines are if there's a history of a substance use disorder, um, if parents are concerned about starting a stimulant medication, so patient or provider preference, if there's a history of anxiety because some of our stimulants may increase anxiety, and if there's a history of tics, um, the guidelines haven't changed, but some of the newer data that's coming out is to say that stimulants may not impact tics as much as we thought. But if there's some concern about it, or if there's a severe, a severe tick disorder occurring, we may want to start with a non-stimulant agent first. So I'm curious to understand in several of the articles at the beginning of our uh, podcast, I said I had read, and they were talking about, so the conditions that can, can occur, the outcome that can occur if ADHD is not treated. Can you kind of expand upon that for our listeners? Absolutely. And this is one of the things when, when parents come in and even kids come in and they're not sure they want to start medications, we have to provide some education because we don't want kids to fail or set themselves up for failure. So some of the things that we see impacted are school performance. So grades might be declining and they continue to decline, which might lead to failing a grade or having to repeat a grade. Uh, difficulty with emotional stability and maintaining friendships. Um, for kids in our developmental age group, our our primary schoolers, first, second, third grade, developing friendships is really important. And if they don't have the emotional stability because they're hyper and impulsive and they're bouncing all over the place, it's going to be a detriment to them moving forward with the rest of their, their school age um, years. 
we also see some impact in the family. So whether there's a relationship between the parent and the child can be impacted by the child having ADHD, but there's also the parents sometimes feel like they themselves are failures because their kid developed ADHD or has ADHD and they have trouble communicating with their child. So this is where behavioral interventions become important, along with even maybe some family therapy or parent coaching to help the parents understand what they can do to help ease some of these um, frustrations that develop at home and that poor frustration tolerance. Now in our teenagers and our adults, we can see some increased risk of accidents with driving um, and inattention. So just getting distracted. I have a friend who has ADHD and as he's driving down the road, he was like, oh look, road sign. And he like drifts off. And so you're like, hey, pay attention to the road. So there's some driving impairment that can happen. And then the others that we see, um, the risk of substance use disorders. Um, parents will be worried about their child developing a substance use disorder, but we actually know that if we take the medications as directed, that risk is really low. But if we don't start them on medication, there might be an increased risk of developing a, a self-medicating disorder or a substance use disorder related to self-medicating their symptoms away. And then finally, with our adults, we worry about the relationships and having some higher rates of divorce and even higher rates of job loss just for not being able to maintain that attention and focus that are required for some occupations. So, Sandra, I think of what this pandemic has done to our healthcare system and the pressure it's put on our pharmacists, our first line responders, nurses, physicians. And you know, there's been obviously some uh, some some terrible things that have come out of this. Uh, number one, uh, the loss of our loved ones and friends and family. However, there's been good that's come out of this, and that is uh, research on comorbidities that, that combined with um, different um, conditions, and uh, with that, um, also ADHD and in those comorbidities. Does ADHD occur alone or or does it have a typical um, comorbidity that, that develops? I think it's a great question, Todd. Um, I would I would echo that the mental health system has been put on an enormous amount of stress with the pandemic and just with being able to see patients. Um, our rates of our rates of new patients has drastically increased, which makes it harder to see our follow-up patients because we know that a lot of individuals not don't only have one disorder, they have lots of comorbidities. So with ADHD, as you go throughout the lifespan, about two-thirds of our patients actually end up with some type of comorbidity. Um, some of the most common things we see, especially in kids, are things like disruptive behavior disorders, such as oppositional defiant disorder, conduct disorder. But as we get older and we get into teenage years and adult, we can sometimes see anxiety, depression, um, even maybe Tourette's disorder and autism spectrum disorders developing in some of our um, like eight to 10 year olds. Um, sometimes autism will not present as we typically expect it to. And so sometimes there's a delay in that diagnosis. But even with ADHD, you can see some ADHD and autism symptoms starting to develop in those early years, like four, five, and six. So how does the non-stimulant medications work for ADHD compared to the stimulant med medications? So that's another really interesting question because what we know about ADHD is that there's some dysfunction of dopamine and norepinephrine in our prefrontal cortex. So there's something going on um, in the executive function areas of the brain. 
And so stimulants typically work on dopamine and norepinephrine. And where our non-stimulants work are more norepinephrine-based than they are dopamine-based. So our oldest non-stimulant, atomoxetine, I, sh I should rephrase that, not technically our oldest, but our oldest that was approved for ADHD, atomoxetine inhibits presynaptic norepinephrine reuptake. Our next set of agents that were approved were extended-release clonidine and guampacine. And most people are familiar with clonidine and guampacine being used as antihypertensives. And they were approved a very long time ago for that indication. However, ADHD is a much newer indication for these agents and specifically related to the extended release formulations. Now they work by also inhibiting presynaptic norepinephrine release, but they also increase postsynaptic blood flow in the prefrontal cortex, which is that area responsible, responsible for some of that executive functioning. Now our newest agent, veloxazine, works slightly differently. It's listed as being a serotonin norepinephrine modulating agent, bit of a tongue twister, and it inhibits norepinephrine reuptake by selectively binding to the norepinephrine transporter, but it also modulates serotonin through agonistic effects on the 5-HT2C receptor and antagonistic effects on the 5-HT2B receptor. Um, which is different than what we've seen with any of our other medications used for ADHD at this point in time. Sandra, so since veloxazine is this newest agent with a novel mechanism of action, can you also provide us with more information about that? Absolutely. It's, it's really, really interesting where veloxazine came from. It actually started out um, being marketed for depression in adults in the UK and the United Kingdom and other European countries in the 1970s. So April of 2021, we now have the FDA approving, the Food and Drug Administration approving veloxazine for use of treatment in ADHD patients aged 6 to 17. And what they initially started out with was starting to look at veloxazine as an immediate release formulation, found that there was no issues with safety or efficacy, and so moved on to marking it and evaluating it as an extended release formulation. So you get that dur increased duration of effect and increased duration of action. So I thought it was fascinating when you were starting into the non-stimulant and stimulant comparisons. How does dosing compare to other non-stimulant medications? So dosing with veloxazine um, is broken up by age, which is somewhat similar to what we see with clonidine and guampacine extended release, um, which is different than what we see with atomoxetine. Atomoxetine dosing is actually weight-based. And so those that are less than 70 kilos start out at a weight-based dosing, but those that are over 70 kilos start out with a straight 40 milligram once daily dosing. Um, with veloxazine, kids that are six to 11 years of age start out with hundred milligrams once a day. And then that's increased weekly by hundred milligrams to a max of 400 milligrams a day. Kids that are 12 to 17 will start out with 200 milligrams once a day and can be increased by 200 milligrams weekly to a max of 400 milligrams a day. So older adolescents can be increased and started at higher doses compared to our younger children. Um, there is one caveat. If there's any history of renal impairment where the GFR, the glomerular filtration rate is less than 30 mLs per minute, then you want to start at that lower dosing at hundred milligrams once a day and titrate by 50 to hundred milligrams. So even a little bit slower than what you see in the younger kids. Um, the studies that are out there actually have not shown 
any increased efficacy above 400 milligrams. There was actually a phase three study that looked at 400 and 600 milligrams once a day in that 12 to 17 age range and didn't see any additional benefit of the higher dose compared to that 400 milligram dose. So that's why we stop at the 400 milligrams. Of all the aspects of pharmacy right now, one of the most fascinating to me is efficacy of medication in the study of that through pharmacogenomics, but also pharmacokinetics and the differences between those of, of absorption and, and what that means for understanding how medications work, especially with uh, the curiosity of our public, as well as uh, so much data that's coming um, at us all. Uh, I go to the pharmacist for the, the end-all be-all in medication management. So how does veloxazine work and how is it used in the body? So veloxazine um, is very similar to most of our other agents. Um, what we're going to talk about is the administration. So we administer it once a day, um, but we can take it with or without food. We should know that if we give it with a high fat meal, so if somebody's eating like bacon and eggs every day for breakfast, they're going to be, there's going to have decreased absorption, which means it's not going to work as well. We also see that with some of our stimulants, like our amphetamines and our methylphenidates. So high fat meals, we should be avoiding because they decrease the absorption of veloxazine and even some of our stimulants. Um, it is metabolized by cytochrome P452D6, which means we could have some drug interactions that we need to worry about. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. It does have a major metabolite, which is 5-hydroxyveloxazine, but it doesn't appear to be an active metabolite, but it is there. So it is something we, we do want to be aware of. Um, as we mentioned earlier with the renal dosing, it is renally eliminated. The average time to peak for veloxazine, veloxazine is about four, about five hours, excuse me, with a range of about three to nine and a half-life of about seven hours. So when we think about half-life and getting to steady state, that really means it's going to take us about two days to get to our good steady state with this medication, maybe three. So the number one purpose of our pharmacist out there, regardless of the setting, is the safety of medications in drug-drug and drug allergy and drug-food interactions. Are there any drug-drug interactions that parents of patients should be educated on for veloxazine? Absolutely. We're actually going to talk a little bit, not only about veloxazine, but about some of our other agents with drug interactions. So let's start with veloxazine since it is our newest agent. Um, it is a strong inhibitor of cytochrome P450-1A2. Um, so we want to make sure that we're not administering it with substrates of 1A2, um, which is not recommended by the manufacturer. So things that are 1A2 substrates that we worry about in mental health are medications like duloxetine, um, or clozapine. Uh, we may also see remelteon or tasimelteon, but other agents that we think about are tizanidine, ciprofloxacin, um, maybe even melatonin. So we want to try to avoid those agents. And avoiding melatonin is really hard in um, mental health and in pediatrics right now because a lot of times melatonin is getting started for insomnia because there are so few drug interactions and side effects that we see with melatonin. Um, and you can get it in a variety of formulations, whether it's a tablet, a gummy, or a liquid. And so it makes it easy to give to pediatrics, especially when they don't want to take medication. You have these other alternative formulations. Um, other things with veloxazine, it is a weak inhibitor of cytochrome P450-2D6 and 3A4. Um, so we want to be sure that we're 
watching our exposure to other 2D6 and 3A4 substrates because veloxazine may increase the exposure of these other medications. So some examples of 2D6 substrates would be adamoxetine, um, which is our other non-stimulant. So if we're cross-tapering from one to the other, we want to be aware that veloxazine may impact adamoxetine. Uh, other things would be desipramine, dextromethorphan, which we find in some of our cough syrups and um, agents when children are sick. Nortriptyline, I've seen nortriptyline used for some of my kids that have migraine headaches, so that's something to be aware of. Metoprol, um, perfenazine, which is an old um, agent that we don't typically use in kids, but we can see that in some of our adults if they're taking veloxazine. Venlafaxine, and then risperidone. So these are the agents that are 2D6 substrates that we are concerned about. 3A4 substrates are agents like buspirone um, or lorazidone in psychiatry, but also some of our statin agents like lovastatin or simvastatin, um, maybe some of our anxiolytics like triazolam or midazolam. And then finally, we don't want to administer it with a monoamine oxidase inhibitor like selegiline. We want to make sure that if somebody is going to be starting veloxazine, that they're off of the MAOI for at least 14 days before that is started. Now with some of our other agents, like um, guanfacine or clonidine, we can see increased effects. Guanfacine and clonidine are effects are inhibited by mirtazapine. So another one of our agents that we can sometimes use for sleep or depression. Guanfacine may increase the level of valproic acid or valproate, so that's something to be to think about. Guanfacine extended release may require dose adjustments when administered with some of those 3A4 inhibitors or inducers. And then adamoxetine should not be administered with other 2D6 inhibitors. Um, so other agents like that are fluoxetine, paroxetine, and even quinidine. And then there's the same warning about administration with the MAOIs and making sure that adamoxetine is separated by 14 days from any MAOI. Now, the one other thing to think about is because some of, we haven't talked about side effects, but some of our non-stimulants can have effects on blood pressure and heart rate like our stimulants. If we're using them in combination, we wanna make sure that we're monitoring blood pressure and heart rate um, at baseline and then at each follow-up visit to make sure that we're minimizing those effects from occurring. Sandra, I'm glad you mentioned side effects because I'm sure, and I'm a, I'm a parent myself, so I would have concerns of the most common adverse effects associated with veloxazine um, that, that we shall be aware of and, and counseled on. So what should pharmacists be counseling about um, with, with concerned caretakers or parents? Uh, so with veloxazine, in the studies, the most common side effects that were actually noted were somnolence and headache. But other things that had increased rates compared to placebo were decreased appetite, maybe some fatigue or an insomnia, um, irritability, nausea, uh, and vomiting. And so you might look at the list and go, well, fatigue and insomnia, they don't, they're kind of opposites. Um, but what we've learned in kids is what one kid feels is insomnia, another kid feels as fatigue or sedation. So it's something to keep in mind. Um, some lesser effects were increased blood pressure and heart rate, upper respiratory tract infections, abdominal pain, and pyrexia were all noted in the studies. Um, one thing to think about the noradrenergic agents, whether it's veloxazine or adamoxetine, not as much with clonidine and guanfacine, but those agents that affect norepinephrine may actually induce some mania or hypomania symptoms. So it's one thing to worry about, especially if the, the child has a history of 
a, maybe an unspecified mood disorder or a bipolar disorder or whether it's bipolar one, bipolar two or unspecified. So those are things that we worry about with some of these agents. When we look at veloxazine compared to atomoxetine, they both can decrease appetite. They both may cause some of that fatigue, nausea, vomiting effect. Um, but other things that atomoxetine will do different than veloxazine is some GI discomfort. Um, they may be some more irritability, but for the most part, their side effects are fairly similar. I mean, you might get a little more dry mouth with atomoxetine than veloxazine. Now with the alpha agonist, clonidine and guampacine extended release, you're going to see some decreased blood pressure, decreased heart rate, maybe some dizziness and sedation. So with the dizziness and the changes in blood pressure, we might want to check some orthostatic blood pressures just to make sure that there's nothing really going on there that's more concerning. So with all of these agents, we do say that at baseline and at follow-ups, we should check blood pressure and heart rate. And then because atomoxetine, veloxazine, and our stimulants all can impact sleep and appetite, we want to check those at baseline and at each appointment also. So one thing we routinely do in, in our clinic is when a kid comes in and they're on a stimulant medication or a non-stimulant medication, we ask them, how are you sleeping? Any changes in your sleep? How are you eating? Any changes in your appetite? And not only do we ask the child or the adolescent, we ask the parent also, because sometimes the kid may not see the differences, but the parents will see the differences. Um, so unlike the stimulants with the effect on appetite, stimulant appetite is usually decreased during the day. And as the medication wears off, you'll see it rebound with the non-stimulant agents. It might be an overall just decrease, um, throughout the entire day. So it might be a diffuse decrease in appetite as opposed to a time pinpointed decrease in appetite. Um, Couple of final things to worry about as far as adverse effects is there is a black box warning on both atomoxetine and veloxazine for increased risk of suicidal thoughts and behaviors. So again, that's something we monitor during appointments. We're asking any thoughts about hurting yourself, any thoughts about wanting to be dead, any passive thoughts about um, going to sleep and not waking up. So those are things that we monitor for um, along with asking about any self-harm. So any increase in cutting, burning, headbanging, different things that may the kids may do to hurt themselves. Um, with atomoxetine, we also want to be aware that there might be some severe liver, liver dysfunction or development of jaundice that can occur, um, maybe some aggressive or hostile behaviors that develop. There's a warning for allergic reactions with atomoxetine. Also warnings for urinary retention and hesitancy, priapism, and potentially some impacts on growth. Um, so those are things that we want to monitor for with all of the agents as we're going and using them to help with our ADHD symptoms. Dr. Mullen, what about guidelines? Let's talk about where does veloxazine fit into the current treatment guidelines compared to other non-stimulant medications? So that's a great question again. Um, the current guidelines don't have veloxazine added into them. So, and they haven't been updated um, since 2019. So where they fit in right now would be in that second line treatment group. So along kind of a parallel with atomoxetine. Um, but thinking about how veloxazine works versus atomoxetine, the phase three studies actually show that you can get some benefit with veloxazine as early as week one. Uh, with that medication compared to atomoxetine that you might see some benefit on your ADHD symptoms at week two or three. Um, you might want to use it for patients that do have a history of substance use disorder or a huge family history that might put them at increased risk 
um, for abusing a stimulant medication or misusing a stimulant medication. And then we also want to avoid it with cytochrome P450 1A2 substrates. So if somebody drinks a lot of caffeine or they're on duloxetine or melatonin, we want to avoid that combination of agents together. So thinking about how quickly it works, um, what agents we can use it with, and then even our population that may be at risk of substance use disorders. All right, so I'm once again reverting back to me being a parent and the consumer on this podcast. And so what are some of the important counseling points that a pharmacist should be aware of in communicating that with patients and caretakers and parents? I think the most important thing to let parents know about non-stimulants compared to stimulants is they're once-a-day medications that really need to fit into your daily routine. So whether the child's taking it in the morning, the afternoon, or the evening, try to figure out the best time of day that's going to be the most consistent to take that medication. It's not going to wear off like a stimulant. It's going to build up over time, stay in the system, and work 24 hours a day. Um, our exception there would be clonidine extended release, which might be dosed twice a day as you get into higher doses. So starting out at 0.1 milligrams per day, and then as you go into 0.1 milligrams twice a day, so getting into that 0.2 milligrams um, per day, that dose should be split twice a day. And then sometimes we'll see atomoxetine actually split twice a day if individuals are having difficulty with side effects and tolerance. And so if it makes them sedated or sometimes we'll see kids get irritable with it, if we split it twice a day, that irritability tends to go away and that sedation may go away um, or stomach upset might go away. Um, so making sure that we're taking it once a day, also letting parents know that that it's gonna take longer to work. So stimulant medications typically work the same day you take them. Non-stimulant medications need to be taken every day consistently for at least a week to two weeks before you start to see really good beneficial effects. So as I mentioned earlier, veloxazine, we started to see benefit on the, the ADHD rating scale in the phase three trials at week one. Um, we see some benefit with that with clonidine and guanfacine between weeks, between weeks one and two and then with atomoxetine around week two or three. So atomoxetine takes a little bit longer compared to the other agents to start to see that beneficial effect on those rating scales as seen in our trials. Thank you, Sandra. I have another concern and this will um, obviously is gonna come up from parents, but I'm sure there's curiosity from our listeners and pharmacists, even physicians that are listening in. So how long should ADHD medications be continued? So ADHD does not have to be a lifelong disorder. So a lot of times if we can put some behavioral interventions in place, some kids will, in you know air quotes, grow out of ADHD or it might morph into something else. Um, in pediatrics, it's really interesting because what you see is hyperactivity, impulsivity, and inattention kind of perseverates through a lot of child and adolescent psychiatry, like depression, anxiety, and trauma disorders. Um, disruptive behavior disorders. So they all kind of have a little bit of that hyperactivity, impulsivity, and attention to it. So it looks like ADHD may not always be ADHD. And those kids that do have ADHD don't necessarily have to have ADHD for the rest of their life. So as adults, we sometimes figure out, you know, I can't sit in an office all day, so I'm going to have a job where I can be outside and moving around um, or where my attention is constantly changing. So something that I'm not doing an office job and staring at a computer screen all day. Um, 
if you have a kid who has been maintained on their medication for over a year and symptom-free, the guidelines say you can start thinking about whether or not you need to continue the medication or discontinue the medication. So looking at periods of reevaluation, um, we like to call them drug holidays. So when can you take the medication away? When can you add the medication back? Do you need to add a medication back? So looking at summer holidays, winter break, things like that to evaluate whether or not the medication needs to be continued. Thank you for that. So um, what, what about information? And there's so much of it out there. So what should we be providing to a parent or patient about the treatment of ADHD medications? So the biggest thing parents should understand uh, when it comes to the treatment of ADHD is first-line agents are the stimulant medications. Um, if they're not comfortable with the stimulant or the child fails the stimulant, then we move on to our second-line agents, whether it's atomoxetine, veloxazine, or alpha agonists. Um, if they can tolerate missing a dose of the medication or they're growing and the medication dose isn't changing, or they have the ability to concentrate during the drug holidays, then those are times when we start thinking about, can we take the medication away? So worrying about when we need it versus when we don't need it, and when can we start thinking about moving away from it. Um, knowing that the non-stimulant agents work on different neurotransmitters or different chemicals in the brain compared to our stimulant agents, that also helps. And then thinking about that duration of onset. So. Um, veloxazine working and the alpha agonist working slightly faster than the non-stimulant or the non-stimulant atomoxetine taking a little bit longer to work. And then the risk of addiction. So risk of addiction is lower with non-stimulants compared to stimulant agents. Excellent points. Thank you so much. So in wrapping up today's podcast, what would you say is the single most important takeaway for our pharmacists listening in? I think... In thinking about everything that we talked about, the most important takeaway is knowing that veloxazine is a, the newest non-stimulant agent on the market. Um, it does have a slightly different mechanism of action, being that serotonin norepinephrine modulating agent, which is a little different than the others, that it may work a little faster. So remember what we see in clinical trials doesn't always translate to clinical practice. So thinking that it may happen a little faster, but knowing that it may not. Um, and then remembering that it's going to take longer for these agents like veloxazine to work compared to a methylphenidate or a mixed amphetamine salts. This has been great. Extremely interesting, Sandra. Thank you so much for uh, participating in today's PTCE Pharmacy Connect. For our pharmacists out there, please go to Pharmacy Times Continuing Education. There will be links in the show notes um, about this podcast and there's so many podcasts and resources at PTCE. Uh, we're excited about what pharmacists are doing, how the role of the pharmacists is expanding. Sandra, you are a champion and you're proof of this because of getting deeper into psychiatry medications. This is so important. Thank you so much, Sandra, for being here today. Thank you for having me, Todd. Thanks for tuning in to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcast. Your feedback is important to us. Please share with us your thoughts on this episode and other topics you'd like to learn about. Go to pharmacytimes.org forward slash contact and send us a message.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.